notes this morning and we'll get to where we get. And it is, we're up here a little early, it's 1127, so you don't have to worry about turning your roast down, it's going to be okay. I think we'll have you out of here by noon today. Now that I've said that, I'll probably preach an hour and a half, so um, good luck with that. I, I, I've never been one to preach long, but I remember one time that I, I, said, I said that I was never one to preach long. And my wife, I look back, and this was some years ago, and um, I look back and my wife's kind of doing this number, tapping her wrist at me, and I don't think anything about it. And I look down, and at the time, it was before I went back to writing all my notes on paper, I had my iPad there, and I noticed I used to always start a timer when I started preaching, so I'd know how long I'd been going. And I think it was like an hour and 45 minutes I'd been at it, and I, I'll try not to do that this morning. But I do want to talk for a few moments, and I, I read a book, and I, we talked on this subject about a year ago, but it kind of struck me in the last couple of weeks, and it's been uh, in the back of my mind, so we're going to talk about it again. But I read a book a few years ago uh, by Dr. Dave Norris. He teaches at Urshan Graduate School of Theology and Urshan College, which a bunch of our students are currently, and uh, is one of my favorite instructors, and although I've never had him in a college class, I've had him been in some sessions where he was teaching over the years. And he wrote a book called Big Ideas. And the thought, the premise behind this book is that God writes big stories. That God has big ideas. And we oftentimes, in our lives, we look at the small picture. We look at what's going on or what's happening today. We look at what we're struggling with this moment or what we're facing this moment or what's going on in our lives this moment, and that's kind of what we see in God. He sees a bigger picture, and he writes oftentimes a bigger story than we, we could see. And I can remember some years ago, I thought I was going to take up chess, and I found that I'm not a super long-term thinker in the way that it means to play chess. And I, I'm thinking about what I'm doing right now, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to kill this guy and this guy and this guy, and then I'll be playing maybe Gabe here, who's a pretty good little chess player, and I'll I'm going to do this and this and this. And Gabe's like, yeah, but you've messed up now because I win. And I'm like, well, that didn't work very good. And I, I don't like losing at things a whole lot, so I quit playing chess. That was how I took care of that. It wasn't important enough to me to learn to get better. I thought, well, I'll just, I'm not thinking big enough for this game, so I'll, I'll stick to things that I know that I can do pretty good at. I was the same way at... At most things, I didn't play any sports in school because I just wasn't that good at them. So rather than put in the work to get good, I stuck to things I could do well. I could take a motorcycle apart and put it back together and make it go a lot faster than it did when I started. So I stuck to doing that. And I thought I was going to race a little bit, and I was too poor for that. So I just went to building motorcycles and four-wheelers for everybody that had more money, and they could go fast. Uh, but but I, found, I found something I could do, and... I looked down later, and at the time, I was just doing what I could do. That was something I was good at, something I could, I could figure out. And my dad was telling the story yesterday. Evidently, that started pretty early, except I wasn't always great at it. And he was telling the story. I was, I don't know, 8 or 10. And they came home, and my parents did, and I guess I had walked home from school, and was, my sister and I were at home. And they get home from work, and they open the garage door and pull the car in and look over, and there on dad's workbench, completely disassembled, was his weed eater. There was nothing wrong with my dad's weed eater. I just wanted to know how it worked. So I took it apart and 
to this day, I still say that if mom hadn't cleaned the garage, I could have put it back together. But we don't know that to be the case because dad just went and bought a new weed eater. I did not take the new one apart, and he still weed eats with it to this day. So that was a good buy. He traded his home light in for a, for a Husqvarna that's lasted a long time. But the bigger story was that there would come times later in life where my wife's car would break down and didn't have the money to fix it, or now I'm just too stubborn to fix it or to pay somebody to fix it. And I, I'd take it apart and be able to figure it out and fix it and put it back together. And times in my life that I, I needed to be supported, maybe didn't have any work coming in and uh, didn't have much going on. And I, I can remember a period of about six months that all I did was work on people's four-wheelers and supported my family. I didn't know that was going to be the case when I was 17 years old and building four-wheelers because it was fun. But what I learned was that God put something in me early because he knew he would need to provide for me later on. He writes big stories. We're going to talk about a few of those stories this morning. I've been talking about little stories that are inconsequential the last few moments. And uh, if you've heard me preach before, you know that I tend to be a storyteller. I like to tell stories. I generally do too at my own expense because most people don't get excited or get upset if I pick on me. Um, occasionally at Braden's expense because I'm still slightly bigger than him. But I, I like to tell stories. and A lot of them, I was reminded this morning as I was thinking, a lot of the stories are things I've learned from my grandparents who've since gone on, and today would have been my grandmother's uh, birthday, and I, I thought of some of those stories this morning. I thought of some of the things that I learned, some of the things I was taught that didn't really matter a whole lot or seemed to do a whole lot at the time, but years later, I saw a difference that was made because of a little story that was actually impacting something way bigger. And that's how God tends to work, how He tends to write, and He takes the pen as He begins to pen the pages of our lives. And we have all these little moments that over time impact eternity. We're going to go to the book of John, the 11th chapter, and I'm going to read just a couple verses I apologize, Brother Jay, I didn't give this to you earlier, but we'll go to John chapter 11. We'll read verses 39 to 42. Um, and while he's getting there, I'm going to set a little bit of background for you. Jesus' friend has died. We're talking about Lazarus, and this is a, a little easier for us today because we know, probably all of us, have heard the story of Lazarus before. But Jesus' friend has died, and... At the time that this is happening, everybody didn't know how the story of Lazarus was going to turn out. Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, they didn't know how the story was going to turn out. All they knew is that their brother was sick and they called Jesus, who was their friend, and they knew had raised people from the dead and healed people. And Jesus, Our brother is sick and Jesus is Lazarus' friend. The least Jesus can do is get over here and heal his friend. That's what they know at the time. And so they, they keep thinking, Jesus is going to come and he's going to do this. And Jesus doesn't get there in time. In fact, it says that he kind of just hung around a couple days before he left. He kind of stayed where he was for a little bit after they said, your friend's sick. And now the Lazarus died. And he gets there and he tells them in verse 39, he, he's got there and he's had Mary and Martha take him to the, to the tomb. And at this point, they're thinking, hey, Jesus has brought us here. 
because he wants to see his friend that passed. He wants to mourn his friend. And Jesus says, Take ye away the stone. And Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Verse 40 goes on to say, Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. He says, Hey, you don't know exactly what's going on here, but didn't I tell you that if you would just believe, You'd see what's going on. They took away the stone from the place where the dead or where Lazarus was laid. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, he says, I know that you know what's going on here. God, I know what's happening here. I'm only making this prayer so that everybody else can believe what's going on. I'm only praying. I know you know what's here, but I'm praying so that everybody else can believe. When he had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave cloths. His face was bound about with a napkin. And Jesus said unto them, loose him, untie the guy and let him go. Y'all can sit down. Jesus comes to this tomb. He says, hey, Martha, let's have him go ahead and roll the stone back. Let's, in today's terms, he, he got to the graveside and he said, hey, dig him up. Put that in perspective for a moment. All the things that they did had been done. And we we think about it a little differently with the tomb and the stone that's rolled over. But if we if we put that in today's terms, he rolled up, it'd been four days. There's probably already some green spouts of grass starting to grow up in the dirt there. Maybe they've already came and set a headstone. Says, hey, get that backhoe and dig him up. Saying, well, Jesus, he's nature's begun its process. He's probably not going to smell all that great in there. The guy's been dead for four days. I, I don't know quite what we're doing here, Jesus, but but he's dead and rotten. He says, hey, you don't know what's going on here. And I have to wonder, as the story was being penned, Jesus was fully man, but also fully God. He knew as he was tarrying this couple days when they said, hey, Lazarus is sick. Jesus says, and he's not telling them, but in his mind he knows, and he's going to die. Now, we read the story, and it's very, very easy for me to look at the story of Lazarus and say, well, I mean, Lazarus had to die because if Lazarus hasn't died and been dead for four days, Jesus couldn't have raised Lazarus from the dead. They couldn't have said, well, he's already beginning to decompose. And Jesus say, well, hey, come walking out anyway, and he's fine. And they had to untie him from all the... Grave clothes, and that's really easy for me to say reading the story a couple thousand years later. Imagine if you're Lazarus, though, and your friend that heals, your friend that does all these miracles, and you've, you've called to your friend and said, hey, I'm sick, and he just doesn't show up. And you know that because he didn't show up, you're not going to live. Imagine that you're Mary or Martha and your sibling And you know that you called to your close friend, Jesus, the one that comes and stays at your house. And you've called to him, and you know that he can heal, and he has the ability to heal your brother that's sick. Not you've called to see if anybody could help. You've called the guy that you know has the ability to fix the situation. And he just didn't show up. This guy that's your friend, 
this guy that you've eaten with, have hung out with, just didn't show up. It's a whole lot different situation for Lazarus or for Mary or for Martha than it is for me a couple thousand years later. I don't, they didn't have the clarity of time and of distance. They didn't have the ability to see the whole picture. What they saw is that Jesus let Lazarus die. I, I, when I think about that, I then read a little bit of curtness in Martha's voice as she says, Jesus, by now he stinks. She's saying, Jesus, you let my brother die. Why did you, did now you want to come mourn with me? I thought you were my friend. I thought you were someone special in here. You had the ability. And I thought we had a relationship and you have let him die. See, Martha didn't have the ability to see that God's pen was still writing. Because what it seemed like to Martha is that story, the story of Lazarus had been finished. But God the whole time is still, the ink's still flowing and the pages are still turning. Because he's still writing, as Paul Harvey would say. I I can kind of imagine, and I don't know why I imagine this, but when I think of these stories, I kind of think of God having Paul Harvey's voice. And now, for the rest of the story. I'm not even going to try to impersonate the voice. I can't do it. But but half the people here aren't old enough. They're saying, who's Paul Harvey? Um, But I, I think of God having Paul Harvey's voice here saying, and now the rest of the story. Because God writes big stories. And the reason he's still writing is because there was a whole group of people that needed to know that God could do more than heal. They already knew. They had no lack of faith in Jesus' ability to heal. They knew he could do that. That's why they called him. What they weren't sure he could do was raise the dead. What they hadn't seen was that death was not a barrier for Jesus Christ. And that would become real important a little while later when he went to Calvary. He was writing a story for them to know that death held no power over Jesus so that they could have some faith when he said, I'm going to return, and then went to Calvary, and then went to the tomb. They had to have some faith built up so that they could withstand what was coming. And I wonder today if Lazarus wasn't in that upper room saying, hey, I'm so thankful of what's coming and I've been filled with the gift of the Holy Ghost. I can experience this and I had the faith to wait for it all because God brought me back from the dead. He writes big stories. I've mentioned a miracle that happened in my dad's life before, but I'm going to mention it again this morning. And I guess it would be about six years ago now. My, my sister and my brother-in-law were youth pastors at the time in Moberly, Missouri. And they are, they wanted to take their, their young people camping. And my brother-in-law is not the camping type. Um, I hope he doesn't watch this. But my brother-in-law had asked me to, if we were going to treat, we've got about 70 acres of of woods, and he wanted to know recently, last year or two, if we had treated all of that for ticks. If we'd treated all those woods for bugs before we went out and did anything out there. Brother Marty, I didn't do that. You probably haven't at your place either. But just to give some context, that's who was taking their youth group camping. And so they were headed out. So they asked Dad to go with them. And 
by go with them, they were, they were asking my dad to go make sure all the camping part of the experience was taken care of. So he set up tents and did whatever else they were doing, and he kept everybody alive for the weekend. And they were, uh, or most of them, and uh, they, they were playing volleyball. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I think a few hours before they were headed back, they had church Sunday morning, and Saturday afternoon, they're playing volleyball, and somebody hits the ball, and my dad misses it. And if you've seen my dad, he's in better shape than I am. Um, he, he, at the time, he was running five miles three or four times a week. And since they've got their pool, the man swims laps three times a day when the pool's open. Before work in the morning, the last thing I'm going to do before I go to work is go jump in the pool and swim laps. But he does. Then he comes home on lunch, go ahead and swim some more laps. And then after work, he'll swim some more laps in the pool. He's pretty good shape. Healthy guy, ate, eats healthy because my mom, like growing up, if there were four people, we had four burgers, four chips, and four beans. That was, that was dinner. And there's a reason that when I started cooking, I became twice the man I was before I got married or when my wife started cooking. But uh, my dad's a healthy guy. And he goes to get this volleyball and he bends over and falls to the ground and at first, they think he's joking. Hey, come on, get up. we got to get back to this game. And then they begin to get worried. And My brother, who may not be a huge outdoorsman, is a wonderful RN. And he runs to my dad. And as he rolls him over, he can tell that something's wrong. Dad's turning blue. And he checks. He doesn't have a pulse. He doesn't have a breath. And he begins CPR for 45 minutes. They, they call 911, and he, he begins to do CPR. And he tells me later, he says, I wasn't doing CPR because I thought it would do anything. I just couldn't bear to not do anything in front of Erica. That's my sister. And for 45 minutes, he's doing CPR that he believes is, he said he's turned kind of blue-gray color, giving breath because you've got to get some oxygen in there. But... No matter how many times they check, there's, there's no pulse, no breath, nothing's happening. The first responders show up in a fire truck, the first people there, and they, they had an AED device but didn't know how to use it. Um, and my brother-in-law, he takes that device and gets it on Dad. And 45 minutes after he fell down, they shock him. And a heartbeat returns to what shouldn't have been there. And the ambulance shows up shortly after, and they get him... Uh, to the to the hospital in Columbia, and that's another probably hour of ambulance ride, and they're they're doing what they can, and they're, if I remember correctly, shocking him a few times in there, and just whatever life saving measures they can do. And when by the time they get him to the hospital, he's stabilized, and they, they get him in there, and they begin to, and somewhere in the middle of this, we've gotten a call, and my wife and myself and my mother all had jumped in actually to a truck I was test driving. And I call the dealer, and I'm like, dude, I've got this truck through the weekend. At this point, I'm just going to have to buy it, but I cannot bring it back to you right now. Um, and so I was in a truck that wasn't mine with dealer tags on it, doing about 120, 130 mile an hour, headed to Columbia. And I was, I was at the point, I'm like, if a cop stalls, gets behind us, we're calling 911. I ain't slowing down. I'll tell them what I'm doing, but I, we're getting there. And we get to the hospital, and... We made it from Piedmont to Columbia in like two hours, and you shouldn't be able to do that, but God was with us. And we get there, and we, we get in, and at this point, Dad's been at the, in the 
emergency room there for 30 or 40 minutes and we get to him and we're getting updates along the way and his heart's beating and he's breathing but it doesn't seem like there's much of him left. We spent a week in the hospital and for most of that week my dad who is one of the most intelligent people I've ever met his brain would reset every 30 seconds. They said he was without oxygen for so long he shouldn't be alive. It's There's not really much brain left. And he could talk and he would say, hey, where am I at? I said, well, you're in the hospital. Did something happen? Yeah, yeah, something happened. Did, did Nathan save me? Yeah, yeah, Dad, Nathan saved you. Well, tell him I owe him a big sodi. Okay. And you'd think you were having this conversation, except immediately next would be, um, where am I at? And we, the better part of a week, I had the same 30-second conversation with my dad. Over and over and over and over and over. The doctor's telling us this is probably the rest of his life. We're looking into, uh, at this point, starting to look into long-term care solutions because we don't know what we're going to be able to do with Dad. For He's not an old man. He's 50, I guess 50 years old. Probably had a lot of life left. Physically pretty healthy. And just wasn't there anymore. And somewhere around day four, day five, Dad says, hey, has... Hey, where am I at? What's going on? We go through that conversation. He says, tell Nathan I owe a big sodi. Okay, Dad, we'll let him know. Then he turns. Mom and I are sitting there. And he says, um, has anybody called work? My dad manages a, a lumber yard. And he's managed the same place. or Been there since 91. He's run the same business all my life. Most of my life. And Has anybody called work? Has anybody talked to, talk to Jimmy and let him know that I'm not going to be there tomorrow? Yes, Dad, we've, we've talked to Jimmy. Um, okay, because I've got, can you make sure? And so when I knew this stuff was starting to click, because this probably won't mean a lot to a lot of you here, but Laura, this will make sense to you. He said, hey, uh, can you make sure that we ordered another truckload of treated number two yellow pine? Because I know I'm running low on treated lumber, and I need to make sure we get some there. I said, you weren't asking that an hour ago. And it was like two to three days after that that he was checked out and we took him home. Uh, within a week, he was back behind his desk. In fact, I called and ordered that truckload of lumber from the hospital. And by the time the truckload of lumber showed up, Dad was there to receive it. He was there to do the paperwork when it showed back up. I didn't understand what was going on when I got the call. Hey, your dad... His past, it doesn't look like he's going to make it. But I can tell you that the boost in my faith when I came home with my dad, knowing that he had been gone for 45 minutes, there's not much I don't think God can do anymore. And more than that, you've got to remember he was with a youth group and there was about a dozen young people standing around praying for him that watched him go down and watched him turn gray and lose all color, begin to even cool down in his body temperature as there was nothing left. And they were able to see when he went to his next doctor's appointment a month or so later, he walked into the church and was able to testify in their youth class and say, hey, God did a miracle in my life and there's no damage. There's nothing wrong with it. He had to carry a notebook around and write some stuff down for a year or two. But I'll tell you today that my dad is still in better shape than I am. Mentally, he's still a whole lot sharper than I am. 
And there's not a whole lot of worry. Because I know God that writes big stories. I wouldn't have written that into my dad's story. But I sure wouldn't have the faith I do today if God hadn't written it in there. My God writes big stories. And we find these throughout Scripture. We saw Lazarus in the tomb. We find David as he's hiding in the cave. Mind you, David has already been anointed king by God, yet the guy that's still king is hunting him, looking to kill him. David's hiding in the cave, and it's Saul, the very one that wants to kill him, and walks into this cave. That's the 24th chapter of 1 Samuel. And you go a few chapters later, and now David's lost in chapter 30, even the support of the men that he had with him. The men that were there when he was in the cave saying, maybe we should just kill Saul. And David says, no, I'm not going to do that. I don't know why I'm having to run if I'm anointed to be king and why I'm having to hide if I'm anointed to be king, but we're not touching God's anointed. But that same David who's running and hiding has now come back to Ziglag, and when he gets back to the city, his men find their wives and their children are gone and their village is burnt down, and now the guys that were with him have said, hey, we're going to kill you. Like, we're done with this. We had your back when it was just the king chasing us, but when our families are gone, we're done with you, David. David, it says, strengthened himself in the Lord because he didn't have anybody else with him. He faced mutiny of his men. And it's everybody on the face of the earth, it seemed, wanted David dead. Wasn't in a great place. And if David had been writing the story, he may not have written that as his story. But to this day, we preach of David and we read the Psalms of David in scripture and we we know that we can take strength from God in dark situations because David was able to strengthen himself in the Lord. We go to the New Testament, we find Paul and Silas at 16th chapter of Acts and they're in a prison cell. They've been out preaching Jesus and they've been beaten and they've been locked up for it. I think if Paul and Silas had written their story that chapter would not have been written. Because who wants beaten and locked up? They weren't looking forward to that. But if Paul and Silas hadn't been in the tomb or in the prison cell, Paul and Silas couldn't have escaped and there couldn't have been the resulting um, revival that swept from that. There are things that couldn't have happened if the story hadn't been written the way it did. God, you see isn't a checkers player, he's playing chess. And he's writing this long story and he's so many moves ahead oftentimes of what I see in my life. And it looked awful dark in the 20th chapter of John as the followers of Christ are now going to see the body of Jesus in the tomb. I wonder though if there weren't some of them said, yeah, I know we're going to a tomb, but I was there when Jesus went to the tomb and rolled the stone away and hollered at Lazarus and he come walking out. See, God, he writes real big stories. And today, each of us come in this place and we are each carrying where we're at in our story. We're carrying a chapter with us. 
And a lot of times we're carrying all the chapters that have been written before and looking at what we've brought in and looking at where we've been, looking at what we face maybe today or what we know is coming tomorrow. And we're carrying the weight of our story with us. And I'll be honest, sometimes I look at it and I say, God, I wouldn't have wrote this here. I didn't want to go through this, Jesus. I didn't want this to be part of my story because I wanted my story to be perfect. Who doesn't? I mean, if you didn't want your story to be perfect, you're lying or weird. Because I wanted everything to go just right. I want to look and say, okay, I came and I gave my life to God and I began to live for Him. And from there on, life was perfect. And I never had problems again and I never had any situations I didn't like again. And finances were always great after that and my health was perfect and Excuse me. There were no problems in my family and there was no loss and no sickness. Nothing happened bad after that. That's how I'd write. I would not sell a lot of books because my stories would be like a straight line. That's how I want things to go. But think back in your life at the stories that affect you and the stories that you tell today. The ones you remember oftentimes aren't the pretty times. I've been on, I don't know, 40 or 50 backpacking trips in my life. used to be one of my favorite things to do. I don't know why. But I, I remember a few of them. A lot of them, I, I know that I was there. I know that I went. I don't remember details. But I remember 10 years ago or so, me and a couple buddies went to a place called the Irish Wilderness. It's over near Donovan. I don't know if you know where that's at or not. We went to the Irish Wilderness. We were going to backpack it. And we had about two days. And... It's not a real long, it's 18 miles, 19 miles, something like that. We thought it'd be a good idea to go in August. It was 105. I've got 30 pounds of pack on my back. It's so humid out, mind you, all three of us like live to be outside. We, All three of us, avid hunters, campers, outdoorsmen, we're outside all the time. Three guys that are always in the outdoors, we could not build a fire because it was so humid. When I, <coughs> I laid down and tried to go to bed, and I'm in my hammock, no sleeping bag because it's 105 and I can't sleep because I'm just dripping sweat. I changed into a fresh shirt and threw my shirt over the hammock rope, and a couple hours later, pull that shirt off and still just ringing. Finally, the only way we realize we're going to get out of here is that we start trekking at about 2.30 in the morning. Not much of a trail left. There had been a storm through. It was pretty rough looking. Had a little flashlight, but I knew that I couldn't stand to do another day of hiking in that heat. So at 2.30 in the morning, we start trekking. We're not sleeping anyway. we just about out of water. Uh, plenty of food left. Didn't care. I wasn't about to eat it. I was, my mouth was so dry. There wasn't any more water. We'd already passed the only spring on the trail. We filled up there and drank all that water. And I'm at the point that I'm starting to fear for my life. And I can remember getting to the point, Tom, a guy that was with me, who at the time I thought was old because he was 40. Um, that doesn't seem as old as it did 10 years ago. But uh, Tom's knee started bothering him, so I've got Tom's pack strapped to my pack. So now instead of you know 30 pounds, I'm carrying 60. And Zach, my buddy, other buddy that's with us, he's got his pack on and then Tom kind of over his arm trying to help him along and and I'm just trekking. It's all I can do. I'm like got my hands pushing my knees down to keep walking. 
They're like, we got to stop. I'm like, guys, if I stop, I'm never leaving this place. If my legs stop moving, I will die here. And I literally had to force myself to keep taking steps. And I've done the math in my head. And I'm not, I have this many miles left. And mind you, I've got a map and a compass because we're like, ah, we don't need a GPS. We're real men. You know, so I'm trying to figure out exactly where I'm going and how to get through here. And I'm like, I've quit counting miles. And I'm like, there's this many steps left in this walk. I know I've got, you know, three miles left and so many steps a mile roughly. Somehow I thought I'd figured that math out in my head because I was about delirious from no water and hot. And by this time it's almost noon. The sun's just beating down. And I can remember the moment I saw the truck to this day. I poke out of the brush and I can see the truck over there. And I know there's water in that truck. And it's like 200 yards. I'm like, guys, I'm not sure I can get over there. I'm not sure I can make it over to that truck. I wouldn't have planned that story the way it went. Obviously, we made it. Obviously, I lived. I remember we started the truck, turned the AC on high, sit there in the truck, just drinking water with the AC on for like an hour before we even left. I wouldn't have written that story that way, but I remember it because of how it went. There were plenty of trips that went perfectly. I don't remember those. I remember a Colorado backpacking trip that a friend of mine got lost. And I remember the trip because we lost him in the middle of the wilderness for like six hours. It's the biggest highlight of that trip. That's what I remember. Was I excited that my friend was lost? No, but that's why I remember it. I've got a canoeing trip in in Canada that everything went right for two weeks, and I remember very little of that trip because there weren't any problems. Nobody got lost. Nobody about died. Nobody got injured. (coughs) We didn't run out of food. I don't remember a lot about that trip. Stories affect us oftentimes because of the adversity that we face. They make changes in our lives. If I were to go on that trip again today, I would not do it in August, and I'd carry twice as much water as I carried last time. I have went back there and bow hunted and had to hike in and hunt and hike out, and I took more water, and I was, didn't go in early September when it was still hot. Because that story affected me and changed my life because of the adversity I faced. And our life is that way, and the problems that we <coughs> face, excuse me, oftentimes not because of a choice we made, but because of life we faced. Oh, I could have made better choices. I didn't have to head to the woods in August. But sometimes we just face life and we didn't choose for it to happen. We didn't pick for it to go that way. And I wouldn't have penned my story oftentimes the way it went. And I I get to this place that I carry my story with me. And the whole time God's saying, if you'll just let me have the pen. And I'm trying to fix all my problems. And I'm trying to look at every scenario and say, how am I going to fix this? And how am I going to change this? And how am I going to get all the weight of this story how do I write the next chapter so that it's not like this and every Sunday we come in and we carry our story in with us and we enjoy some freedom for a couple hours as we sit it down and we begin to worship and songs are going and the presence of God is here and all of a sudden it feels better and it feels lighter and everything is just great and we're like this, this is how my story should be. But the problem is a whole lot of Sundays, a whole lot of us then 
pick that chapter up and carry it right back out the door with us. And I take all my problems because I will tell you how I think. I think, well, okay, service is over and the problems are still there, so I'm going to pick my problems back up and I'm going to carry them and I'm going to go back to facing them because I've got to get through life and I've got to get through this day. And That's just what I do because it's there and it has to be done. So I'm going to go face life. And the whole time God's sitting there looking, he's like, you moron, let me write. Can I, can I have the next chapter? Can I have the next pen? Can I carry the weight of your story for a little while? I think the reason that God was called the author and the finisher of our faith is because everything will work out if we'll let him write the story. Does it mean we won't face things? No. The the one promise that I cannot find in Scripture is that God will take all my problems away. Because if I could find it, I'd be preaching it every Sunday. I assure you, if that promise was in there, God's promises are yea and amen. I know they're going to happen. I know they're right. If that promise was in there, I would be preaching it every Sunday. There probably wouldn't be an empty seat in the place if all I had to do was come in and begin to serve Him and never have another problem in my life. Because people would flock to get rid of every problem. I haven't found that promise in Scripture. What I have found is I won't leave you or forsake you. Brother Marty, I found that even when I'm hurting, God's still there. And we know what happens. We know He heals. We know He touches. We know that He does some miraculous things. But oftentimes, Brother Marty, He couldn't have touched you this week if you hadn't been hurting last week. Just how it goes sometimes. Does that mean that God made you hurt last week? No, but it does mean that He went through it with you this week. Sometimes we can look back and I see this problem and this problem and this problem and today I can look back with the, uh, with distance helping me out and say I can see where God touched that and I can see where He touched here and I can see where He changed my life here but when I went through it, somebody come to the piano and begin to play. I'm going to, I'm going to quit here in just a moment. But when I went through it, when I was in the midst of the problem, what I did not see was, hey, here's an opportunity for God to work. What I saw was, I don't like going through this. I don't like carrying this. Why am I having to deal with this? And in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of life happening, and life isn't always a pretty thing, in the midst of that happening, when we're going through it, It's hard to have the clarity to say, God, I thank you for the miracle you're about to do. But today, I want you to look at whatever you carried in with you. And I can't make you the promise. Maybe maybe you're sick and maybe God will heal you and maybe he won't. I don't know. I, I know that he can. I know that he's able. Sometimes he does and I don't always understand why. But what I do know is that you don't have to go through it without Him. Maybe you're facing financial problems today and I I can't promise that those will be gone tomorrow, but I can promise that God will be there with you. There are things that each of us carry, each of us face, that life's still going to happen. And I cannot make you the promise that tomorrow life will still won't be here. But what I can promise is if you'll come to these altars this morning, And if you'll give that life to Him, if we can take the pen that we've been trying to write with, and we can bring it to Him and let Him begin to write, 
I can promise you that he'll take that weight and he'll take that burden. And I can remember, I came to my grandmother some years ago. I was going through something. I said, Granny, why, why did this happen? And why are we having to deal with this? And why are we carrying the weight of this? And I don't know that Amber and I can make it through this, Granny. And I, why is this happening? She asked me, answered with a question. She said, why are you trying to carry it? Why are you trying to carry your problems? God's trying to do it for you. Have you ever seen a kid, and I'm going to close here. We've all seen a kid that just isn't quite big enough to do something, but they so bad want to do it on their own. And they're trying and trying, and you're telling them, let me just help you. They're like, no, I want to do it. And by the time they get done doing it, there's a mess. Maybe there's food all over the place or they're stuck in a shirt that they didn't get on quite right. Whatever the problem is, the kids, you know, they're like, I'm going to pour this milk. And then they've dumped the whole gallon in the floor. And all they had to do was just let you help them. And you're, you're like, why didn't you let me help you? I've got four kids. There's been a lot of those why didn't you let me help you moments. You're laughing over there because you've got more kids than I do. Like a whole crowd of Harpers. Why didn't you let me help you? Why? And I, I feel like sometimes we pick our problems back up on Sunday morning and we carry them back out the door and God's up there saying, Why? Why won't you just let me help you? Why can't I carry the weight? Does it mean the glass of milk has, doesn't still have to be poured? No. What it means is God will help with it. Does it mean I don't have to face tomorrow? No. But it means that he'll face it with me. Does it mean that the problem won't still be there, that life won't still happen? No, but it means that God goes through life with me. This morning, I want to open these altars as they begin to play. I understand this isn't like get excited, run around the church type scenario. Looking at and examining realities of life. But if anybody here has got a problem, if you got something you're facing, whatever it may be, I can promise you that if you will bring it to this altar, if you will bring it to an almighty God, he's up there saying, please let me help. Please let me help you. Let me carry that weight for you. Let me carry that burden for you. Let me pick up the pen and let me write your next chapter. If you'll just bring it to me and trust that I'll have it. So I ask that we come this morning. And I ask that we bring whatever our need. Whatever the situation. I don't know and you don't have to tell me if you don't want to. I'm willing to listen if you do. But who knows already and is just waiting for you. Just waiting and asking, will you bring me your problems as an almighty God? As they begin to play, please. Please let him have the pen this morning.